If I try to follow God in holiness, then it's going to make others feel really uncomfortable to be around me. And, um, you know, you might feel like everywhere you go, if you, if you bring up the fact that you follow Christ, like people peg you in a certain way or you just, you know, people respond to you in a certain way. So there, there's all these images that come to our mind when we think about holiness. And so I really want to look at what does this really mean? What does the Bible say holiness is? It's, it's kind of customary to define holiness as something free of stain or, you know, just something that is pure, holy, perfect, immaculate. But the primary meaning of holiness in the Bible, to be holy, is to be set apart or to be separate. You can follow along if you'd like. It's, it's in your listening guide here. Holiness means set apart or separate. It comes from an ancient word that means or that meant to cut or to separate. Basically, to put into a different put, to put into a phrase we might use today, it means it might mean like a cut, a cut above, cut above the rest. It's just separate. And in the word or in the Bible, this word holiness or holy is applied to all sorts of things that God is saying ought to be separated or set apart from others. You find holy bread, holy place, holy of holies, the holy man, holy city, holy water, holy nation, holy days. There's all these things in the Bible that God says are to be separated, kind of cut above everything else for God's purposes. And I really want to look at how this, you know, when the Bible says God is holy, I want to look at what that means and then try to apply it to our lives and how we are to be holy like Him. So we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and take a look at the passage from a song. We read the, or we sang the song a minute ago, I See the Lord. And that's, this, this is where it comes from, Isaiah chapter 6. And so you, we've got it up here on the screen. Isaiah was a prophet who lived about 2,800 years ago. So, long time ago, 8th century B.C., before Christ. And he got to experience God up close, and he got to experience His holiness in a way that was very different than others. People in the, you know, in the Old Testament didn't just want to approach God because um, the obvious, you've probably seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, being in the presence of God means death for, you know, in that movie. And in the Old Testament... Men couldn't just rush in to be in God's presence. There were certain things God would allow at times people to come and approach Him, but He made ways for that to be possible. And in this situation, you'll see how, that, how God initiates to allow Isaiah to approach Him. So Isaiah approaches God and it says, we're going to look at this, just kind of break it apart. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died. So King Uzziah, the reigning king in Judah, he was a, he was a pretty good king, okay? Um, the kings of Israel and Judah had all sorts of experiences. There was a really good king named David. Uzziah wasn't a good king like David, but he was somewhat of a decent man, decent king. But he wasn't a bad king. There was all sorts of kings in Israel that were really bad, and the Bible talks about them, some of the things that they did. So Uzziah, he kind of found himself in the middle. He did some good things. He reigned uh, for 52 years. He, he ascended to the throne at the age of 16. So many people in in Jerusalem or throughout that area, lived their whole life under the reign of this man, Uzziah. And, you know, he lifted up the right things when it came to um, God. He was victorious over God's enemies. He had some agricultural programs that were really good, just did some good things for God's people. But the very last year of his life, his career took a downturn. Everything was going great, and this is often what times, 
what happens in our lives. But his life was going really good as a king. And then the last year of his life, he decides to rush into the temple and do to take for himself some of the rites that were reserved for the priests alone. And he took some of the holy things for himself. And the Bible says that the priests tried to stop him for his own protection. And he yelled at them. And God struck him with leprosy. And he ended up being banished from his kingdom, banished from his people, just isolated to himself for the remainder of his life. Okay? And so here was a great king who damaged his reputation at the very end of his life. And so Isaiah is saying, in the year that King Uzziah died, Okay, because he died isolated of leprosy. He says, I saw the Lord, okay, seated on a throne, high and exalted. And you have to kind of put this into context of what's happening in the country. There was a question or there was a concern of sovereignty in the land because the king was no longer in charge. And so there was this big question of sovereignty. And Isaiah rushes in and he says, I see the Lord seated on the throne. And the word Lord there means the sovereign one. It's talking about the one who is in control. So despite the fact that everything was out of control in this country, the the king was no longer on the throne. He's saying, I see the one who's still on the throne. I see the Lord who's seated on the throne. I am exalted. And the train of his robe fills the temple. So God's train was filling this entire temple. And he says, above him were seraphs, which are angels, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. So they had these six wings that functioned and, and had different purposes. Two of the wings helped them fly. Okay, So these angels were flying. They had wings to help them fly. Two of the wings covered their faces. And this is a picture of how, you know, just the separation. They're, they're creatures. They couldn't see God. They even respected the fact that God was holy. And so there was this separation covering their faces from the Almighty God. And then there's two that are two wings covering their feet, which um, in the Old Testament, again, Moses, when he approached God, God told him, take off your sandals because the place you're standing is holy ground. And so, again, the angels, their feet are covered in a sense. They couldn't approach God. There's this, again, this, this whole picture is one of, of, of separation. God is even separated from these angelic beings, okay? And it says that the angels were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. In English, we, when we want to emphasize something, we might talk louder. Listen up. Do I have your attention? We raise our voices or we put, if we're writing a letter, we put, we put it all in bold. If we really mean it, we put it in bold and caps. If we really, really mean it, we put bold caps and you know lines of exclamation points, right? We have ways of emphasizing things in English. In Hebrew, the way they would emphasize things was repetition. So in the Bible, you'll find uh, two words, you know, like verily, verily. Jesus would say, truly, truly, I say to you, or verily, verily, which means truth or truly. And so here, holy, holy, holy. This is the most emphasis you can really make about something. He's, the angels are saying, God is holy. He's holy, holy, holy. And nowhere in the Bible do you find God is love, love, love. Or God is mercy, mercy, mercy. Or wrath, wrath, wrath. Or all these other things that describe God. But when it comes to holiness, there's this, there's this major emphasis here on, on, his, on His separation. How He is separate from, 
creation, from all creation. There's none like him. And then it says this. It says, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. So everything is shaking. These angels are declaring God's holiness and everything is shaking, including Isaiah himself. The reason I say that is because you look at the next verse. He says, woe to me. I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He's saying in the very beginning, whoa, I am ruined. The word ruined there can be translated, I am undone, or I'm disintegrating. Isaiah was a good man. He was a righteous man who followed God in his ways. But even this righteous man, in the presence of Almighty God, he, he declared, I'm coming apart. Everything good about me is disintegrating in the presence of the Almighty God. And then God, what He does is He steps in and He initiates a way for Isaiah to approach God. He says, Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So in a moment, this man who was coming apart, disintegrated, God made a way for him to approach him. He gave him a way to be forgiven. He was clean before God. And then God says to him, well, it says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. So you have this picture of God's holiness and how it just, there's this clear separation and and just Isaiah, he recognizes his own sin. He recognizes his uncleanliness before the Lord and his need for God to help him with that. And this is a really, really powerful picture. As I've read this, just through the years, you know, it, it really gives you this imagery of how majestic God really is. And I wanted to start with, with this because for years and years, this whole picture is played out in, in real life. Many, many people have really struggled with trying to pursue holiness because of our own sin, because of our own struggles to, to be like God. We're, we're all, we all lived life independent from God. And, and it's very clear to us that we, we don't get it right in life. We do things wrong. And so because of that, it's hard for us to just see how this gap would ever be bridged with God, that we could actually approach Him. There was a pic, I want to show you a picture of a man. This is Martin Luther. He was a, a German monk in the, in the early 16th century who, who struggled almost to the point of insanity for, for much of his early years just with this whole idea of God's holiness. He, he recognized that God was separate. And he was so far superior to his creation that he wrestled with, how could I ever approach this God? How could I ever come close to this God? Because he knew... Just like Isaiah, he knew that he was an unclean man. He had struggles, just like us. Early on in his, he was, uh, you know, in training in the monastery, and one of the early things that would happen in, a, in the life of a monk was they would celebrate, or their family would celebrate them entering into the ministry by coming to watch their very first Mass that they're performing. And so Martin Luther, he was to lead the Lord's Supper or the Communion, and just at the point where he was to give the blessing and pray over the bread and the wine, and he was going to recite a prayer, or a known prayer in those days, he froze up before the church. 
and his family sitting there watching and they're waiting for him to do what he's supposed to do. This is a big moment for all of them. And he froze up. He started sweating. Sweat and perspiration is filling up his forehead. And he can't go any further. And another one of the priests tries to nudge him along and help him out and he just, he's, he just stopped. He can't do anything. He bows his head and he walks and he goes and sits with his family and he's, he's ashamed. His family's ashamed because they just were all embarrassed. And he was questioned as to why, why did he do this? Why weren't you able to offer the Mass? Why weren't you able to offer these elements of the Lord's Supper? And this is what he said. He, he, was, he was about to read these words. and um, He was about to read the words, We offer unto thee the living, the true, the eternal God. Okay, so he's about to offer the Lord's Supper elements. And he says this. He says, When I came to these words, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, With what tongue shall I address such majesty? Seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of, an, of even an earthly prince, who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, I ask for that. For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. You know, he just recognized how, just like Isaiah recognized, and we ought to recognize how, you know, there's some things that just separate us from God that make it very, very difficult to just approach him. And he, he couldn't go any further. He could not speak as, as a priest, you know, in that moment. He's also known for his very lengthy confessions. This man, Martin Luther, he, uh, priests would confess when they needed to. So maybe once a week they would confess. He confessed every day. He went to confessional every day. And he, he confessed for up to an hour. And at one point it was recorded that he confessed even six hours. Just thinking, God, I thought this, I did this, I'm sorry for this, I did this. And he just, he wanted to make sure there was nothing left in his life. Now, let us bring this up is because he was driven almost to the point of insanity as he tried to get his mind around God's holiness because he realized God is so holy, I how can I approach him unless I am all cleaned out, all cleaned up? He concluded that if the great commandment, Jesus was, you know, asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, love Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He said, well, if that's the greatest commandment, then the greatest transgression was to fail to love the Lord with all my heart. And he, he was just, he was stuck at this point. He couldn't figure out how to move forward in his relationship with God until he came to understand some things about God and His holiness. And I want to look at the passages that Martin Luther really, that God used to transform Martin Luther's understanding, and it really helps us understand how we can be holy like God. So let's look at this. Um, we're going to look at some verses in Romans. Because one of the things that, just before we get to this verse, one of the things that we have to realize is that nobody's perfect. None of us live up to God's standards. And so Martin Luther found himself in a system of people that were saying, you know, let's approach God. But he was saying, man, how, how is that even possible? Unless God judges on a curve, then, then I'm not going to be okay, is what he was thinking. But if God judges by standards of his own justice and righteousness, how could I ever stand before him? I'm doomed. And the, and the Scripture, one of the things the Scripture does not do is doesn't declare that God lowers His standards in order to accommodate our lives. 
He never lowers His standards for us. He remains holy, just, all the time. And, and Luther was just haunted by this thought. How can, I, how can I approach Him? So, how can anyone be made holy? In Romans chapter 1, we find a verse that Martin Luther landed on eventually. Years later, he, he broke away from the Roman Catholic Church and he, he partially responsible for leading the Protestant Reformation and just major changes as far as church history. We're not going to get into any of that. But he came to understand that no one could work their way into God's presence. No one was capable of it. No one at all. And he came to understand that God was one who was fully righteous, but he made ways for us to approach him. So how can anyone be made holy? The first thing is righteousness. He, he found out righteousness comes through faith in Christ, not our own efforts. So all the confessing, all the trying to clean our lives up on our own, he, he realized eventually, man, that, that's important things, but that's not how righteousness comes. It comes through faith in Christ alone. It's not by the good things we do, but it comes through faith in someone. Romans 1.17 says, For in the Gospel... A righteousness from God is revealed. So he's saying, God's declared there's a way to be right. There's a way to be just before Him. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So he he concludes, Martin Luther concludes, and we need to understand that righteousness, holiness, it's, it's something that God grants to us through faith. And it says in the Scriptures here, it's through faith from first to last. So from the very first person who was seen as a righteous person and could have a relationship with God, it was through faith. To the very last person on earth who will ever experience a relationship with God is through faith from first to last. So from every person who believes in Jesus Christ is through faith. That's how we approach Him. What happens is God applies Jesus' goodness to our lives and that changes our standing before Him. This verse really clarifies even more. You're going to find in Romans 3, 21 through 26. The point is made that God alone has the power to make you holy. He's the only one that can do it. Our confessions don't do it. Our, again, are trying to clean our lives up. But God alone has the power to make you holy. Look at Romans 3, 21 through 26. It says, But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, meaning apart from our efforts to keep God's standards, a righteousness has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness comes from God, or I'm sorry, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. So it doesn't matter your age, it doesn't matter your skin color, your gender, your religious traditions, your goodness, it doesn't matter of any of that. He says, verse 23, for all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us doesn't matter. There's no difference. And we're all justified freely by His grace. Grace is his, God's unmerited favor. Through the redemption that came by, Jesus, by Christ Jesus, God presented Him, speaking of Jesus, God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice. So what He's saying is He couldn't, He did this. He let Jesus... He, He sent Jesus and Jesus went through. He walked his life. He gave up his life on the cross. But this was for his justice. This is 
a declaration of God's justice. He could not lower his standards and just say, oh, I'll let anybody approach me. He couldn't lower his standards to accommodate us. The verse goes on, because in his forbearance, he had, in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So again, it's not by works that we're saved. God alone makes us holy. We receive this gift of grace through faith. Faith alone. And it's interesting, this passage says, He is both just, He's just, He keeps His standards of holiness, and He's also the justifier. He's the one that allowed us to receive faith in Christ. He's, He's the one that sent, you know, that worked out this plan for us to be redeemed. He held the standards and He gave us a way to meet those standards through Jesus. He did this in Isaiah's case. He did this in Martin Luther's case. And He still he still offers this to us today. If you've never come to the point where you've received Christ and you've, by faith, accepted Him into your life, this is, this is what it's all about. It's coming to the point where you realize, I cannot do it on my own. My own good works, my own goodness is not enough. There's a... Um, there's a box on your, on your welcome card that says, I'd like to learn more about a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'd encourage you, if you've never come to the point where you've done that and you need help understanding what that's all about, I'd love to give you some information, have someone from our church connect with you and help you understand how to commit your life to Christ. <clears throat> that's very, very important to understand. Heaven and a relationship with God is not about my goodness. It's about God and what He's done through Jesus Christ. Good people... Don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. And so it's just it's it's a very helpful thing to remember. These conclusions that Martin Luther made and that Isaiah made, I need God to step in to help me to approach him, to make me holy. On the back side of your outline, there's this tension though we live with, you know, all of our lives. If you're a follower of Christ, you know, the tension is this we are holy and we are also called to be holy. This is something that's very, very difficult to deal with. We're holy, and yet we're called to be holy. We live with this tension. And you see it in the Bible. Just the Bible's term for a holy one is saint. Okay? The Bible says that we are saints. And now you might come from a church tradition that has elevated the word saint to certain individuals have you know, become saints, but Scripture says that just followers of Christ, we're saints, we're declared holy ones before God. Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, there's two verses I wanted to just kind of show you here. Philippians 1.1 1, 1 and Romans 1.7, two of Paul's greetings in, a letter, in letters to d- different churches. It, you see this tension here. He says to the first church, he's saying, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints, the letter's written to all the saints in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus at Philippi. So he's calling this group saints. And then you flip to Romans 1.7 and it says, To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So there's this tension. We're declared saints and at the same time we're called to be saints. So there's this process going on of God is making us holy. And at the same time, God looks at us, looks at us if you've committed your life to Christ and He already has declared you holy. We just live with this tension. At, at one and the same time, we are just we are seen as holy, and yet we're seen as sinful. And we need to keep striving to become saints. It's, it's a 
you know, we can't get our minds around it. Now, God has already declared that if we know Him and if we've received Him by faith, that that, that issue is settled. You're a saint. So then why the tension of trying to be holy in this lifetime? There's a verse that I want to just wrap up with here. Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is a verse I'd encourage you to take a look at this week and to begin to figure out, how do I get this into my life? How do I work on becoming holy? Since we recognize, just in reality, we, we, we have, we've got a ways to go. Even though God sees us as holy, we've been declared just through the blood of Jesus Christ. We still have got some things that God's trying to work out of our lives. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Just stop there. In the past, God, God's people would present offerings or sacrifices, animals sacrificed to God, in order to atone or, yeah, atone or pay for their own sins. They would bring a sacrifice, a spotless lamb that would be offered up, for the sins of God's people, allowing God's people to approach God again. He's saying, that's been done away with. Because in Jesus Christ, the sacrifice, He is the once and for all sacrifice. So this verse says, now we're to urge, God's urging us to offer our bodies, ourselves, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. God still wants us. He still wants all of us. Not just a slice of our lives. He wants the whole thing. He wants us to be as a sacrifice to Him. The price has already been paid, but our lives each day ought to be offered to Him. Just saying, God, I want You to make me holy. I want You to show me the areas of my life that are not like You, that are not like Your goodness and Your holiness. Help those things just magnify so that I can turn those things over to You. There's still this tension there. It's, it's a good thing for us to recognize our need, <clears throat> our need for God and His, still His purifying to go on in our lives. The verse continues, it says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. He says, do not conform. So offer your bodies to God as a, as a sacrifice, and then do not conform any longer. We sometimes look at this verse and we think, okay, God wants me to be a nonconformist only. Um, but the verse actually doesn't say that. Now, it's true. He's saying don't conform. So there is this idea or there's this point of being don't conform. Be a nonconformist. Nonconformist means you do things like the forms that are in place, the structures that are in place. Conform. Con means with and form means structures. So you just you do your life like everyone else does it. He's saying... Don't just, you know, don't do that. Don't do life like everyone else does it. But, he says, don't just stop there. He says, but be transformed. Or, this word really means to go beyond the forms. Go beyond the forms that you see in life right now. Go beyond the way that people do life. God wants to take our lives to a new level. And he says this happens by renewing our minds. Renovating, remodeling us from the inside. God is trying to Take what's going on in the inside, our perspective, the way we think life really works, and he's trying to renew us from the inside. We don't really have time to go into all of you know, how that looks, but transformation in the mind comes from 
getting a new perspective on life. God, God's trying to you know, draw us to get into the Scriptures. This is what renews our mind, is His ways, His Word. It's just so far different from what comes natural to us. And so as we get into the Scriptures, it renews us from the inside out. This whole process of being made holy comes through allowing God's Word to just sweep over our lives each day, regularly just asking Him to show us the things, show us His ways, help us to see our life in light of His ways, and just begin this process of renewing and renewing. That's how holiness, that's how we, we can mimic God, is by allowing this process to go on in our lives. There might be some next steps you'd like to make. Just, and then the band's going to come up. Uh, first, if you've never received Christ, you'd like to do that. You'd like to know how to do that. Let us know on your welcome card. Also, maybe you'd like to memorize that verse, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Take a look at that verse. It's a great verse just to be thinking about this process of how can I be made holy. And the last thing, just getting started reading the Bible. If you'd like to learn how to do that, on your welcome card there's, there's a thing that says I'm take, interested in taking the next step, A, B, and C. If you circle C, what that means is I'd like to start reading the Bible. I'd like to learn where to start. I'd like maybe someone come alongside me and help me learn how to do that. Um, and then I, I can send you some information about how, how to get started in those areas. So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer and continue in worship. Father.